This is Energy Thinks, a podcast for the oil and gas industry about how we can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into a cleaner energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host. I'm also the founding principal of Adam and Teen Energy. On today's show, I have a conversation with Katie Bays and Stephanie Miller of Sandhill Strategy. They're based in Washington, DC, and we'll discuss the political trends that affect the future of the oil and gas industry. To learn more about these webinars, previous podcasts, and our work at Adamantine, you can visit us at energythinks.com. Now here's my conversation with Katie and Stephanie. With that, it's my pleasure uh, to welcome you both, and I'll jump right in with a question. Um, so Stephanie, things are pretty exciting on Capitol Hill. Stimulus negotiations and outcomes continue to change and roil the waters uh, on a weekly basis. Um, what can you tell us about what these politics uh, say around how legislators and the leaders are thinking about oil and gas? And we, we just heard in the last couple of days um, that the Trump administration will not be providing more direct um, support for oil and gas companies. Uh, how does this play out? How are people thinking about the industry? And how should the industry be thinking about its relationship with these legislators? Yeah, I mean, um, th first of all, thanks for having us. And taking a step back, I think where we are right now is is really demonstrating the divide in this country. We, we started 2020 with a very clear political and ideological divide. And that really went away in March when the coronavirus COVID-19 hit and all of the initial stay-at-home guidance and orders started taking effect. We all defined the problem as trying to avoid um, flattening the curve and new instances of the virus and certainly avoiding death. Um, and we all defined the solution to that problem as staying home and then whatever sort of economic mitigation was necessary by the federal government to help um, alleviate that. We have seen since March, again, sort of a splitting between the two sides, largely in what the definition of the problem is. Oh, and I'm having work at from home, work from home visitor. I'm so Hi, sorry. Honey. No problem. All of, our, all of our work is, is includes our extended family. So, yeah, so I've, okay. So, so Stephanie, <laughs> well, <laughs> all right, he's gone. Okay, right, sorry about that, everyone. Continue. Yes, yeah, so, um, so it's a the, comfort to working parents everywhere that that is, that's been in asking, podcast recording exactly. challenges. So I'll give you a second, Stephanie and Katie. Why don't you chime in? Your your expertise focuses on the oil and gas industry. What are you seeing um, about uh, what what we in the industry should be thinking about or even worrying about with politics right now? Yeah, thank you so much, Tisha. And I am I am for these purposes also childless. So, and, uh, <laughs> me too. Um, so slightly quieter unless someone else shows up. But the the oil and gas industry, I think, has certainly been, and the energy sector has been the hardest hit in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. The sector was already facing significant headwinds heading into 2020, and with the sudden and uh, you know unbelievably abrupt, unprecedented loss in demand for motor gasoline, for crude oil broadly, you have 
felt this kind of kind of resonating sense of doom and gloom in the capital markets. And uh, there have been some subsectors and companies who've been impacted particularly egregiously in that environment. It's a lot of the folks who uh, are, you know, more on the growthy side or the development stage trying to sell uh, investors on a vision of the future, which is, you know, more in doubt now than it maybe has ever been, or at least has been in recent memory. Um, but what does that mean for, for the rest of the companies in the space? You know, not everyone is doing badly. And there are companies that we've seen that have an opportunity to sort of stand out as leaders. Um, I think it would be very interesting to talk a little bit about how companies uh, have been positioning themselves in DC and how policymakers are responding to that. But one of the most interesting and most impactful messages that we've heard here in Washington from the oil and gas industry is just to let the market do its work. Let the market work, let the market work in energy, um, especially in conventional energy. Don't intervene, don't make extraordinary uh, economic or fiscal policy commitments to try to prop up the oil and gas industry. Um, and I think that what may be driving that in part is a long overdue trend towards consolidation and kind of a right sizing of investor expectations for the lower, smaller and mid-sized, the lower tier, small, mid-sized oil and gas companies where, you know, ultimately we maybe do have too many operators and we do have too many, uh, you know, too many visions and too many egos. And for some of our, you know, mid to very, to larger size E&P companies to be able to demonstrate some leadership, sort of say we've got this has been a very compelling message in Washington. I think you've seen that on the policy side. You don't have, um, you certainly don't have a cohesive policy towards oil and gas coming out of the uh, capital right now. You have uh, a lot of um, bifurcated sentiment and that is so far, so far kind of prevented, I think any, any decisive action, but it's an interesting environment and at this point, they definitely are, you know, large U.S. independents, uh, integrated oil, oil and gas companies, and our majors are kind of winning the day. So that's really interesting. I do want to return to the idea of how companies are positioning themselves and how that's being received. Uh, before, I'll take it back to you, Stephanie, to get your thoughts on the, the divide that we're seeing, the partisanship we're seeing. Do, does sentiment around oil and gas really divide down party lines? And are there any notable exceptions to that? And you can weave that into the thoughts you were making before. Before my wonderful three and a half year old jumped in. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's interesting, because I've been covering kind of whatever the biggest political mover is in Washington now for long enough that I remember, like when cap and trade was moving through the Congress and the there is certainly a partisan element around climate change a lot of times, but it, there also is not at all around um, many issues relating to energy because it has way more to do with what the state and districts um, that are that have jobs and other uh, you know their economic well-being is tethered to those industries. That tends to be a big driver. So energy is not a you know a very by uh, partisan issue. Um, however, many of the states that are energy producing states tend to be Republican leaning. I mean, Colorado is not, Colorado is very purple. 
Um, and so doing things to make sure that, that jobs are protected, that is gonna forever be a universal thing. And so this takes me back kind of to what I was saying before, which is that when, when March was occurring and it felt like the US economy was on the brink of stepping off a cliff, what happened was the most pressing, pressing, obvious issues were that was travel because everyone was told to just shelter at home. And so the airlines went um, to to Washington and said, you know, we're gonna we're gonna really struggle unless you do something specific for us. And since that's happened, the appetite to do specific things for specific industries has started to wane because everyone's having a problem. And oil and the energy sector obviously has had its own extremely interesting and dramatic um, set of issues. But a lot of industries have had very dramatic and unique issues to them that are life or death for their own industries. And it's really bipartisan not to have to pick and choose jobs um, as much as it is to try to protect jobs. And so I think the trend that we've seen is trying to move away from having Congress be in a position to pick winners and losers. It's hard enough for investors, let alone policymakers. What they'd rather do is focus on individuals and small businesses because those feel like the backbone of the economy and are a much better surefire bet. Um, and so, you know, all this being said, it is certainly bipartisan to do things for the industry and not let it fail, but it is for every industry. And I think um, there's just a lot of a lot of nuance that is is hard to keep sight of when you're so focused on one industry, what else, you know, what else the global macro economy is asking of this Congress or the president is quite large. It's such a good point, Stephanie. And I've been doing a lot of thinking and writing about um, how the oil and gas industry can use this moment to transcend some of the historic polarization around energy by joining in a societal effort to re respond, recover and rebuild. Uh, and at the same time, I've been thinking about some of these pleas uh, in Washington and, and how they might backfire by looking like defending an old industry or defending an historic way of being while a lot of the world is thinking about energy in novel ways. Um, so I'm really curious, Katie, what you're seeing uh, about, I, th I think we have a pretty good idea of, of what um, companies have been out asking for. And of course, there's quite a diversity. There's uh, usually opposing sentiment about many ideas coming out of the same industry. But how are policymakers responding? Is there a lot of interest and patience for helping the industry? Or is there um, maybe, does it have the potential to backfire? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I love the way you ended your sentence because that was exactly where I was going is that what we have so far seen with industry specific aid from the White House or from Congress is that sometimes and in many cases it can backfire. And one of the most important trade-offs I think in the energy space in Washington right now is what kind of environmental um, pound of flesh will the industry offer up or trade off in order to access some kind of support. Um, perhaps that's one reason why not so many companies have made explicit requests um, and a few have done so very publicly but it's not the it's rather the exception than the rule. 
um, we have seen, and this is this was I thought one of the most striking and interesting things that came out in the House version of the CARES package was an airline cash for clunkers program, basically like in exchange for support from the government airlines would need to or could participate in a cash for clunkers where they take their most emitting uh, airplanes out of their fleet and actually retire them through the FAA, through the Federal Aviation Administration. And that kind of creativity and that desire to, in exchange for government support, to fundamentally reshape the industry that is the target of that support is the trade-off that especially progressives seem interested in trying to make when asked for help. How do we also transform this company or this industry so that three to five years from now, it's actually closer to our progressive environmental goals than it is or would otherwise be? That's such, I hadn't heard about the cash for clunkers in the airline industry. Such a great example. And uh, resonates with what Canada is doing, which is providing funds to oil and gas industries to beef up their greenhouse gas uh, leak detection and repair programs, as well as to permanently plug and abandon wells. And so there's a, a pal palpable sense of evolution and transition in that. And I, I love that idea because um, a lot of what we want to do in, in these uh, energy thinks conversations is inspire the industry to think about how they're leading into the future. And so I think you gave a really um, a good example of that. Um, and so what, while we're in leading into the future mode, I'll, um, I'll turn it back to you, Steph, to tell us about uh, how you see uh, a, a big national presidential election playing out in November. And so I'd love to hear what you think is gonna happen, especially as we're starting to see a pretty strong turn in the polls uh, that's crit critical of incumbents. We're also seeing a pretty strong reality this week among um, investors and the public that this is we're in this for the long haul after some one might call it irrational exuberance <laughs> the last couple of weeks from, from my perspective. Um, so what do you see happening? And then how do oil and gas companies um, mitigate risk of change at the same time as they're, they're uh, undergoing so much internal change right now? Yeah, so this presidency, let alone this year, are historic. And it is always difficult to apply trends, therefore, to something that feels like it could be breaking the mold. Um, but that said, Anytime that a sitting president has run for re-election in a recession in the last hundred years, uh, he has lost. And it doesn't matter how big the recession is, it can be very minor. We're obviously entering an enormous recession. We're in an enormous recession. I think we're going to learn that the second quarter uh, contraction is clearly double digits and very big. So history would tell you that Trump has a huge, huge, huge mountain as an obstacle to overcome. What we're seeing in the polls, though, is that most people trust Republicans and the president specifically versus Joe Biden to help in coming up with economic policy solutions. So the question I'm trying to figure out is, you know, will he be punished for what happened in the past or will he be rewarded for his vision for the future? 
and um, it, so it seems like perfect for this podcast <laughs> um, in terms of trying to figure out which wins right now. Uh, a lot of the polling that I find to be helpful in swing states and states that matter show that Biden is ahead, which again is not surprising based off that past precedent. Um, and to me, again, going back to the polling, polling also shows that most voters trust Biden over Trump to deal with the health side of this. Not so on the economic side, Trump wins, on the health side, Biden wins. So I think, you know, what it's going to come down to, and Biden's barely, barely, barely ahead. He's ahead, but he's not far enough ahead that anyone should be calling it. I think it's just going to come down to how risky the health side of this feels in the weeks leading up to the election day. I really think that is going to be the thing that determines who wins. If it feels like the virus is out of control and people are worried for their, their lives or the lives of their family members, Biden's going to win. And if not, Trump has a chance to win. Um, and that, so I do think right now, if I had to guess, my guess would be Biden wins. So interesting. And, and we'll bring you back in the months ahead to continue to get your updates on this very volatile situation. The way we're thinking about this is in the spirit of too close to call, companies should be assessing what a Joe Biden presidency could mean for their organization. And certainly with his announcement yesterday of his uh, climate change task force, um, co-chaired by AOC, this is an area that, that um, companies need to be uh, nimble and mm -hmm. thinking ahead. Um, so I, I wanna pivot a little bit from uh, politics direct impacts to how investors are thinking about this moment. This is really both of your area of expertise. And in some ways, a lot of drivers for the oil and gas industry has to come back to what is important to their investors, particularly in this moment when they're trying to create um, some stability around their financing and their share prices. So um, Kate, Katie, what do you see that investors are watching right now around oil and gas? What do they care about? Um, what should companies um, be focusing on? Uh, is, it, is it climate? Is it politics? Is it just get your balance sheet in order? What matters in, in these times? Yeah, so let's take a step away from coronavirus because that will eventually end and uh, investors in many ways, like I think all of us struggle to exactly appreciate or anticipate the twists and turns that the global pandemic is going to take. So that's a hard thing to handicap and ultimately is not probably the most important thing for everyone to be thinking about um, for their medium and long-term plans. I think one piece of advice that, you know, I wish more companies were focused on in 2016 to just to think about you know using history as a guide is not to make their company a binary bet on the outcome of a presidential election because i spent most of 2016 and that was an election right where donald trump didn't have a chance <laughs> where I remember Steph and I were, I remember the analysts covering the elections had to get like talked off the ledge about putting 100% odds on Hillary Clinton winning the election, you know? And I mean, it was just such a sure thing. I'm not saying that to fault that person at all. It was that we were all so sure. And yet still, I spent most of 2016 talking to investors about what happens to oil, what happens to coal, what happens to gas, what happens to LNG if Hillary Clinton 
gets elected? Is she really like Obama? Is she going to have to be more progressive? I mean, I, I would think as a company, I would not want investors and markets to be evaluating my long-term trajectory and my value based upon who's sitting in the White House. Because, you know, yes, it's energy, so to some extent this can't be avoided, but that is the thing that beyond anything else, you know, you as a company really cannot control. So, because to Seth's point, you know, oftentimes things like economic trends have more influence dictating outcome of presidential elections than anything else, even ideas. I mean, we can talk until we're blue in the face about whether or not Americans want a fracking ban, but if, if the, you know, you have a Republican president that tanks the economy, whether they deserve responsibility for that or not, you're probably going to end up with a Democrat in the White House. It's not going to be any more complicated than that. So the point I think here that is really important for companies to take away is there has to be some positive engagement with community and with environmental representatives, maybe that's not the Sierra Club, not your big ticket national organizations, but with you, this concept of the company that is pulling resource out of the ground or moving resource across states, um, not doing so at the expense of the community, I think is one of the most important distinguishing features between the companies in my coverage universe who seem to have easy access to capital versus companies who seem perpetually, you know, quote unquote, undervalued relative to their own growth projections. Um, because that undervalue really represents market skepticism that, that ultimately this company holds its fate in its own hands. And if I, as an investor, don't believe that a company is the master of its own destiny, that it's the poster child for you know, spills in the Gulf, or it's a poster child for pipelines that leak, then I as an investor have to be cognizant that there may be this, you know, big thing that happens in the future that comes in and eats my lunch. And, and that's, I'll, you know, I'll pay for that, whether or not um, it's fair or not. So I think about that primarily and, and really emphasize that regularly with a lot of our clients that companies frequently get into unmanageable risk situations by and a lot of times I think having failed to anticipate the controversy of their own actions. That's so such a great point and a, a different driver for why oil and gas companies should really have a bipartisan, a nonpartisan or a transpartisan strategy because you have virtually no effect over who gets elected, but you do need to demonstrate to your investors that you will re be resilient regardless of the outcome. So that's really nice. Um, and a nice other reason other than the, for, to have a relationship directly with whomever <laughs> becomes in office at every level of government. But it's also uh, interesting to know and not something that I knew that investors were watching and thinking about that. So my, my last question for, for both of you, and you can uh, round in any other topics you want to squeeze into this question, is my observation of this moment is that those who prioritized climate and decarbonization in the energy industry pre-pandemic are 
are thinking and believing authentically that COVID accelerates the energy transition. And that this is all, there's a whole world where the, uh, all the stimulus is going to be um, focused on reinventing energy and, and accelerating a transition into the future. And then there's another worldview that maybe didn't prioritize climate and decarbonization pre-pandemic. And in that echo chamber, there's a, a palatable sense that economics is what matters and we have one or two years till we return to climate or decarbonization. And because I have my feet in both worlds, what is really surprising to me is the absence of bridges <laughs> between those worlds. And so I'm curious uh, to hear from each of you how, you how you think about it. You have feet in both worlds like I do. And uh, you, in fact, you might have more than two feet because you also have politics and investors um, as well. And so I'm curious if you think that um, climate and decarbonization for the oil and gas industry become a priority um, sooner, later, about the same. Uh, how should companies be thinking about this? You're, you're as uh, fair an arbiter of, of these worlds as, as anyone. Stephanie, what do you think? So I'll take the first. Yeah, so House is run by Democrats. So that's kind of the most, the highest level Democrat um, sort of bellwether for what Democrats could try to do at a federal level that you can get. And as Katie mentioned in the, in the version of what we call the CARES Act, that first big stimulus bill in March, um, airlines were coming to them saying they needed you know, a handout uh, or a bailout or money, and Democrats responded with a bunch of strings attached, including environmental ones. In this most recent version, so the House, um, it's, you know, May 14th, I don't know what day it is. Yesterday or the day before, because I can't keep track of what day it is, they introduced their next version, and there was not a lot of stuff about the environment in there. There was some and there was not, there was no mention of climate change. I did a word search because I thought, I'm like, wonder how aspirational they really will get with climate and nothing, no mention of it. And so to the folks who think that even the House Democrats will push for some really big things on climate, the most of the Democratic Party is not there yet. Um, and progressives have already said that this bill doesn't go far enough on a lot of issues, and I think an energy and environmental issues are one of them. But, you know, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is not the Democratic Party. It's a wing of the Democratic Party. And the other part of the Democratic Party that we don't hear from because they're not as loud about these issues are, are very, very, very moderate to conservative around some of these issues and really do prioritize economics over, over climate. Um, all day, every day. Um, and so that's just a really good thing, kind of positioning to remember. But Katie, I'd love you to jump in with some of your observations too. Yeah, thank you, Steph. And one of the ways that's kind of fun to think about this, I think, is to zoom out and look at um, how, how public sentiment sort of pivots and shifts between environmental preservation and economic uh, welfare. And generally speaking, environmental preservation declines as a priority for the public when the economy is in trouble. And then when that happens, folks start to really emphasize, you know, we need to uh, invest in our economy and the environment is viewed as being a trade-off with that. And vice versa, when the economy is doing very, very well, as it was for about the last 12 years up until, you know, the first part of this year, uh, you could see that the environment and the power and the importance of the environment was actually rising. So in some senses, that 
typical kind of trade-off or seesaw between environment and economy is an argument for why this crisis will delay the significance of uh, emissions reductions or global climate goals. But that said, you know, we are in a very unique situation where the economy is struggling because of a sudden abrupt halt in economic activity. And that sudden abrupt halt in economic activity has also led to a sudden abrupt reduction in emissions, both of carbon, which is of course not visible, and of visible air pollutants, including smog forming pollutants or particulate matter. The absence of visible pollutants has led to a obvious, noticeable, Instagram-worthy improvement in air quality. It's been this amazing thing, and I, you know, I like, I'm sure a lot of other people kind of giggle at the earth is healing memes that are on you know, Twitter and Instagram, and they're kind of funny, but they're also pretty amazing. I think it, sh it serves to illustrate how meaningful it is to people when they can see uh, the natural world kind of react to human behavior. So we have a very unique circumstance now where we can see the reaction by the environmental wor world to our economic decision-making. Um, and, and in the states where, and I'm just focusing on the US, I think this is also true in Europe and other parts of the world, but in states that are inclined to value environmental health and welfare, this event could supercharge their focus on environmental policy. I don't think that you're going to see a lot of that policy in 2020 because of legislative schedules and because of the fact that we can't all get together in one room right now. But in 2021 and through the course of the next administration, I think regardless of who's in the White House, you are going to see states like New York and California and the coastal states in particular heavily lean into an environmental narrative that's in part informed by how effective we know it can be when we stop driving combustion engine cars and when we stop uh, you know, emitting pollutants from factories or industrial facilities where where we're using fossil fuels to, as an engine. So that to me is, is a really important difference between this economic contraction and any other that's preceded it. It's such a great point for us to end on because I opened with the idea that we work with, which is both of these things are true. And here we have that it is indeed true that companies have some amount of time before climate and decarbonization and the energy transition become the top of mind social risk they're facing. And yet at the same time, they have to mitigate their future risk with, um, with left-wing politicians, with international agency expectations, with a public that expects an energy transition to be underway. And all of that requires keeping, of course, one eye to the future, one eye to be able to articulate um, the, the oil and gas industry's role in a changing decarbonizing energy future. So that's an awesome place for us to end. And I wanna thank you both, Stephanie and Katie, for being a guest on the Energy Thinks podcast. And I look forward to bringing you back in a, in a couple months to get, to get your latest up, updates. That's our episode for today. Thanks to Katie and Stephanie for taking the time to share their insights with us. We wanna know what you think about what you've heard here. Visit our podcast website at energythinks dot com slash podcast and let me know you can describe to energy thinks on itunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts 
If you like what you're hearing, please help us out by rating the podcast. Thanks for listening to Energy Thinks. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler. Be kind and be well.